This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Information about the mind, brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments for psychiatric illness and insights into its causes, how to improve your relationships, how to get rid of bad habits, and all of that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources about mental health issues, and also brought to you with more than 20 years of experience in the practice of psychiatry, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and also trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues. And welcome again to this podcast, which was pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday evening, September the 28th, 2016. Well, to start off tonight's podcast, <clears throat> depression and uh, treating it successfully with medication is a major mental health and public health problem. And as you may very well know, uh, only a small percentage of people get well the first time they try an antidepressant. Uh, trying to find the right medication to treat clinical depression successfully is a very, very difficult problem. And, of course, we, we need to know more and more about why they don't work. Uh, there are certain ways of doing genetic testing to narrow down the choices, but at the end of the day, even that is not a Rosetta Stone. It's not going to say, well, this is exactly what you need to try. Um, there are many, many reasons why antidepressants don't work for certain patients. They can just be a poor match for the person's body chemistry. Uh, there can be complicating factors surrounding the patient's depression where medication alone won't help. Um, and there are just lots and lots of reasons. But there is a, a major meeting that took place recently in Europe, uh, the European College of Neuropsychopharmacology Conference in Vienna, Austria. Uh, a couple of papers came out of that meeting that we're going to be talking about on tonight's podcast, the first of which is why is it that antidepressants don't work in some patients? Well, <clears throat> it's not going to be a startling revelation, but, you know, there may be some insights that could help, so I thought we would talk about that. <clears throat> um, perhaps in some way, uh, this might help patients and their doctors who are trying to treat depression more successfully. The SSRI antidepressants, uh, SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, uh, these are easily the best known antidepressants. Um, they include Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Luvox, Selexa and Lexapro, they're among the most commonly taken medicines, 
but there's no way of knowing in advance whether or not they'll work effectively. Now, I should also say that SSRIs are not the only antidepressants. A lot of sources in the media talk about them as if either that's all the antidepressants we have or all the antidepressants we have are SSRIs. Nothing could be farther from the truth. There's at least another half a dozen or more antidepressants that are not SSRIs. Okay. Well, in any case, a group of European researchers has developed a new theory of how the SSRIs work, and they tested it out in stressed mice. Okay, now I give the same disclaimer I always do when I talk about rodent studies. Yes, I know it does not compare to the human brain, but it's an easy system to study, and there are, believe it or not, analogous structures. It is a mammalian brain. Uh, the basic structure, although far more primitive, obviously, is somewhat comparable, and the same chemical neurotransmitters are there. Now, the results show why the circumstances we find ourselves may influence whether an antidepressant works or not. In other words, is it your environment that may determine whether or not the SSRI antidepressants work or not? And what about your environment? Well, there is no doubt that antidepressants work for many people, but between 30 and 50% of depressed people find they don't work. And again, like we talked about, we don't really know why this is. Hopefully this work would explain at least part of the reason. The researchers have proposed that simply by manipulating the levels of serotonin, by taking an SSRI, it doesn't induce recovery from depression by itself, but instead it puts the brain into a condition where change can take place. It increases what's called the plasticity of the brain. In English, that means making the brain open to making changes, adjustments, adaptations. In a certain way, it seems that the SSRI antidepressants, and you could speculate the other antidepressants too, open the brain to being moved from a fixed state of unhappiness, as happens to people in a state of clinical depression, to a condition where other circumstances can determine whether or not you recover. So this is really an intriguing idea. Uh, we know that there's a lot more to the picture than how the medicines work. Um, the antidepressants, let's say, will stick with just the SSRIs for now. They in, almost immediately cause changes in the flow of serotonin in certain pathways in the brain. But yet, even if someone's going to get well, it doesn't happen for at least two weeks or perhaps longer. Uh, and also, as we just talked about, a lot of people don't feel better. So why is that? Well, if this explanation were true, it would account for that. And their premise is the medicine just gets the brain into a state where it's able to adapt and improve and 
result in, in changes in mood for the better, but it depends on the circumstances the patient finds himself in. The environmental conditions that a patient is in at the time of treatment <clears throat> may be what determines whether you're likely to get better or no better or even worse, regardless of which medication and uh, how well the medication works or not. So to test this idea, they took a sample of mice, which they subjected to stress for two weeks. <clears throat> uh, those of you who are members of PETA, please don't call or write in. Again, I had nothing to do with the research, just reporting it. Uh, they started treating these mice with the SSRI fluoxetine, <clears throat> more commonly known as Prozac, and they divided the group up, continuing to stress half of the mice, but the other half were subjected to a more comfortable environment. <clears throat> now, all jokes about cruelty to animals aside, the issue of stressing the mice, uh, measuring certain things, then administering medication, seeing the effects, scientists know that this is a very, very crude, but nonetheless workable and reliable model for depression in humans. In other words, after doing studies similar to this over so many years, it has been shown that when you stress mice in a certain way, it will induce changes in their brains that are similar to what happens in the brains of humans uh, when they are depressed, or if not similar, at least somewhat analogous. Likewise, if you administer antidepressants to mice, you can reverse the changes brought on by the stress. So it's a very crude model, but yet consistent and reliable model in terms of looking for chemicals that may work for depression in humans. Now, uh, after they divided the mice into these two groups, um, ones that were continued to be stressed and one that, ones that were then transferred into a more comfortable environment, but all of them were getting Prozac. They tested all of them to measure levels of stress-related cytokines in the mice brains. Cytokines are protein-related molecules which aid cell-to-cell -cell communication in the immune system, and they are increased in circulation in the blood, in the body, and therefore in higher concentration in the brain when a biological being is under more stress. Uh, stress results in increased production of stress hormones, uh, chief among them cortisol, and cortisol results in the increased production of these cytokines. So measuring them, especially in the brain, is certainly a way of determining to what degree the mice are being affected by stress and how or if the medication is alleviating it. Now what they found was that keeping the mice in a more comfortable environment showed an increase in the, in the expression of the pro-inflammatory cytokines and decreased anti-inflammatory related genes 
as well as showing fewer signs of depression, whereas those under continuous stress show the opposite effect, that is, a decrease in pro-inflammatory cytokines and an increase in anti-inflammatory gene expression with more signs of depression. Now, this might seem counterintuitive, but I think there is a logical explanation. And as far as that and what happened as a result of treatment with Prozac, uh, we'll talk about that after we take our first commercial break. Again, uh, the purpose of the study is to glean insights into why antidepressants may or may not work depending on the environment. We'll have that and more health, mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. Right now, we're talking about an interesting experiment in which some scientists took some mice put them all under stress, then put them all on Prozac, and left half of them continue to be under stress, and the other half a more comfortable environment. So let's talk about what they found again. Now, why would the ones that were put in a comfortable environment show an increase in the expression of pro-inflammatory cytokines and decreased anti-inflammatory related genes? but yet fewer signs of depression. Well, probably because the the genes uh, seem to be thinking that, hey, you know, there's not enough cytokines being produced because there's less stress, so maybe we should increase the production. Uh, however, 
the combination of the medication and a more comfortable environment resulted in less depression. Conversely, those who remained under stress had plenty of cytokines in their system already, and so that would decrease the production of the cytokines and uh, increase the gene expression to try to respond to that change, but yet they were more depressed. Now, um, when you look at the Prozac-treated mice who were in the comfortable environment, they had a 98% increase in the pro-inflammatory cytokine interleukin-1-beta. Ones kept in a stressed environment and treated with Prozac showed a 30% decrease in the pro-inflammatory cytokine tumor necrosis factor alpha. What all this means is that the environment does determine the response to antidepressants. And that simply taking an SSRI isn't enough. Um, they put you in a certain situation to succeed, but if your circumstances interfere with that, it won't work. Um, it means that when treating people with antidepressants, we have to consider their environment, their circumstances, and simply giving them a medication and expecting them to get well is not going to be enough. Now, these studies have some limitations. Um, they're not explaining the complete range of action of SSRIs, and also, like we talked about, it's an animal model. So there need to be clinical and epidemiological studies to test the validity of this hypothesis in humans. However, I think if all this did was say, hey, wait a minute, pills alone are not enough to get someone well, and we need to pay more attention to other factors. Um, while that's hardly a revelation, it is important to remind clinicians that there's more to be done besides getting brain chemistry right. And that when people are not responding to medication, it should result in a very hard look at a patient's life circumstances and their environment, and there should be other interventions to improve those situations uh, rather than just giving someone pills and waiting and hoping that they're going to get better. Well, one of the life circumstances that could potentially affect someone's response to their antidepressant medication could be their job in their job-related stress. And this is another paper that was presented at the European College of Neuropsychopharmacology in Vienna, Austria. This one to me is a little more controversial because it concludes that if you have a high-status job, it means you are less likely to respond to treatment for depression. And when I read that title of the article, I thought to myself, well, what are they saying? Are they saying that just because you have a high-status job, you're under more stress and you have more responsibility, um, more is expected of you, your job is more difficult and demanding, therefore you're less likely to respond to 
depression? Does this mean that people who have low-status jobs are not expected to suffer from depression that it may be as difficult to treat? Certainly, smacks somewhat of elitism and discrimination, but uh, of course that's just the surface. So to be fair, let's actually examine the study and the results and then see what really went on. It was an international study that found that having a high-status job means that you are less likely to respond to standard treatment with medications for depression. Up to a third of patients who receive drug treatment for depression don't respond, and knowing which groups don't respond could help clinicians understand which treatments are appropriate to which person. In the case of workers, it may also enable employers to take steps to ease stressful conditions. Although there is a wealth of research showing that low social and economic status is associated with a greater risk of depression, there has been little work focusing on how occupational levels respond to treatment. A group of international researchers enlisted 654 working adults attending clinics for depression and classified their work according to occupational level. 336 or 51.4% held high occupational level jobs. 161 or 24.6% middle level and 157 or 24% low level. Around two-thirds of patients were female, which reflects the normal gender difference in reported depression. Most patients were treated with SSRIs, although other pharmaceutical agents were also used, as well as psychotherapy. Those in the higher level status jobs were found to have received fewer SSRIs, and more psychotherapy. Let's pause right there. I found that very, very interesting. And to me, uh, even though this was done in Europe, I would have to conclude the situation is probably comparable to some degree in the States, even though we know the healthcare systems are very different in many countries in Europe. But why would it be that there was more psychotherapy and less medication in those with higher occupational status. Well, perhaps it's because people in those situations are more likely to have better health insurance that included coverage for psychotherapy. And that's certainly the situation here in the States. Uh, psychotherapy is not covered as well as most medical treatments. This remains a scandal in our country um, as to gaps in treatment mental illness but people who have better jobs have better health insurance coverage and therefore are more likely to be able to afford psychotherapy whereas <clears throat> those with less resources lower occupational status uh, may not have as good health insurance coverage if they have any at all and they're more likely to get 
just medication treatment, which unfortunately is seen as a quick fix as opposed to psychotherapy, which is seen as a longer-term, more costly intervention. Now, on analyzing the results after treatment, the researchers found that the almost 56% in the highest occupational group were resistant to treatment. In contrast, only 40% of the middle-level workers were treatment-resistant, and just over 44% of the low-level workers were resistant to treatment. This difference was also reflected in the degree of remission, remission from depression, with only around one in six in remission in the higher status group, as against around one in four for the other groups. Though these findings should be considered preliminary, they indicate that high occupational levels may be a risk factor for poor response to treatment. A number of variables could explain the findings. For example, there may be specific working environment demands and stressors. People may find it difficult to accept or cope with illness or to continue with medication. Or there may be other factors related, for example, to cognitive, uh, which refers to thinking, attention, and memory, personality, or behavioral differences. It shows there's the need for precise prescribing, not only related to the symptoms and genetics, but also occupational level. One might need to prescribe different medication for the same disorder and need to take into account the occupational level in order to reach optimum effect. Hmm. A bold claim by the researchers, um, personally not buying it. Uh, I think the brain is the brain, no matter what occupation someone has, and someone in a very high status occupation can have certainly a very high stress level, but there are certainly plenty of situations where someone with a job like that has very low stress, whereas someone in a low status occupation who may not have uh, varied or weighty responsibilities or complex tasks still can be under a tremendous amount of stress and be resistant to treatment. <clears throat> the researchers said that the results of the study might sound counterintuitive, but people with highly demanding jobs are subject to a lot of stress, and when they break down with depression, it may be difficult to cope with their previous life. Well, we'll finish up our thoughts on this study and explore other mental health-related news when we come back from this next commercial break. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Obamacare is failing. 
We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, talking about how a study done in Europe found that people with higher occupational levels were more resistant to treatment for depression. Well, one other explanation as to why they thought that might be the case. It can't be ruled out that given the naturalistic design of the study, the higher status job patients might be more prone to request psychosocial treatments without the support of medication. And they said the ideal treatment of depression is in general the combination of both pharmacotherapy or medication and psychotherapy. Well, again, I'm, I'm not buying that either, and I'll tell you why. Um, well, at least I would say it, it, it doesn't apply to the states. Um, it's been found through other previous research that people of lower socioeconomic status actually prefer therapy over medication. It's only people of higher occupational status and higher education who are more in favor of medication. So that's one reason I don't think that their idea works. The other thing is that they say the ideal treatment of depression is in general a combination of pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy, and that is often true but not all the time. Um, if you compare the results of pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy, they're roughly equivalent. The difference is that Pharmacotherapy certainly helps someone get better faster, but as far as longer-lasting results, psychotherapy trumps pharmacotherapy. All in all, the uh, two papers we looked at from this conference in Vienna, um, not so sure I think the second one had valid conclusions about people with higher occupational status being more difficult to treat for depression. Um, on the other one hand, the first one, I think, just serves to remind us of uh, basically a very common sense type issue that 
even if you're on medication that's doing what it's supposed to do to treat depression, if your environmental stress isn't addressed, you may not get better. Next up on psychiatry today, if you are a smoker and you're struggling to quit and you also suffer from depression and either currently are under treatment for that or you have been in the past, then listen up or if uh, you know someone in that situation, please direct them to listen to this because there are some new insights into how to get depressed smokers to quit. Uh, and this comes to us from Northwestern University. Researchers there pinpointed why quitting smoking is particularly difficult for depressed people and they're now testing a new smoking cessation treatment combining medication and something called behavioral activation therapy targeted at this population. The paper is an extensive review of current research and it offers a much deeper understanding of why nicotine withdrawal symptoms for people with depression make it much more difficult to quit smoking. And the paper was published in the international journal known as Addiction. They've used this new theory of withdrawal in depressed smokers to develop the first targeted approach for smoking cessation in this underserved population. Depressed smokers experience adverse withdrawal states that contribute to resumption of smoking, including depressed mood, difficulty engaging in rewarding activities, and impaired thinking and memory. That certainly reflects what I've seen in my own practice over the years. When someone is trying to quit smoking, the initial side effects of that are depression, irritability, and impaired concentration and memory, as well as insomnia and, of course, increased appetite. The symptoms are more severe for people with depression than those without depression. In addition, depressed smokers have fewer ways to cope with the symptoms, and the nicotine in cigarettes helps to mitigate these problems, which is why depressed people tend to relapse at higher rates than those who are not depressed. Many smokers learn, if I smoke in this situation, my mood gets better. But while smoking improves mood in the short term, it produces a long-term decline in mood. On the other hand, successfully quitting smoking is associated with improvements in mental health. The review found that depressed smokers' first adverse state while trying to quit is a combination of what's called low positive affect, meaning low pleasure and engagement in rewarding activities such as socializing or physical activity, and high negative affect, feelings of anger, sadness, guilt, or anxiety. The second adverse state is cognitive impairment, difficulty making decisions, trouble focusing, and trouble with memory. The study's researchers have begun testing a treatment 
that targets the specific challenges depressed smokers face when they're quitting. People who have clinical depression have typically been excluded from smoking cessation clinical trials. The logic to that being that the depression in those patients would complicate the results of the intervention to help quit smoking because it's harder for depressed patients to quit smoking. So if you want to look at the smoking cessation treatment uh, purely as, as to how effective it is, you wouldn't want clinical trials to include people with depression because uh, that would interfere with the results. The Food and Drug Administration approved medication Chantix is coupled with a type of behavior therapy called behavioral activation to treat the depressed smokers in the Northwestern study. Researchers are investigating whether Chantix reverses thinking and memory problems that depressed smokers experience during withdrawal and whether the behavioral activation improves smokers' moods so they engage in normal, pleasurable activities and thus have less desire to smoke and are able to resist relapsing. Behavioral activation is an effective treatment for depression, but this is the first time it is being used as a treatment for smoking cessation among depressed smokers. The clinical study is being conducted at Northwestern Memorial Hospital and also the University of Pennsylvania, and it is currently accepting participants. People have thought for some time that depressed smokers have difficulty quitting because they experience a more pronounced withdrawal syndrome, but the evidence is scarce because depressed smokers are hard to recruit and consequently have not been studied. But now there is convincing empirical support for this theory. And as far as new treatment approaches, uh, we certainly need that. And what the article doesn't mention is there were all those awful warnings about Chantix as far as it causing thoughts of suicide, aggravating depression, and very serious adverse mood states. And when those warnings first came out, uh, the Food and Drug Administration made the manufacturer add that language to the prescribing information for the drug. And when that happened, uh, the Federal Aviation Administration came right out and said that uh, commercial airline pilots may not take Chantix, a very bold step. Um, now, in, recently, in the past year or two, there's been ever-growing momentum to get the FDA to remove those warnings because more and more studies have been done on Chantix in people with depression, and they have found that there is not the increased rate of depression, suicidal thinking, and behavior that was once thought to be, that, in fact, people with depression tolerate taking Chantix very well as far as helping them quit smoking. I can tell you from my own experience in my own practice that it's been exceedingly rare that I've had anyone have any psychoactive negative effects from being on Chantix. Um, it seems to be that 
when I've seen that happen, it's been in people with bipolar disorder, not people with ordinary major depression or unipolar depression. And the reaction hasn't necessarily been depression or suicidal thinking or behavior. It's been more anger, agitation, or irritability. And I think the reason I've, over the years, hardly ever seen Chantix aggravate someone's depression is, by definition, someone seeing me is already on medication to help regulate their mood, and therefore they're protected uh, against the side effects of the Chantix by the antidepressant medication that they're already taking. Well, be that as it may, if this combination of Chantix and the specific behavioral activation therapy proves to be effective, hopefully this would be a, become a validated uh, treatment approach to help depressed smokers quit. We certainly need more options to help people quit, and suffering from depression certainly does give people <clears throat> more challenges. But I think regardless, it's important that clinicians of any type continue to encourage their patients who smoke to try to quit regardless of what method they use. Um, It's shown that the more times people try to quit and the more different methods they use, the greater the likelihood it is that they will quit. There is also good research to show that the combination of nicotine patches and Welbutrin Help some people quit, even the combination of those two plus Chantix. Uh, so really, the more treatment modalities you employ, the greater the likelihood someone will quit. And the key is that someone has to be intrinsically motivated. They have to decide they're done and they want to quit smoking. Until then, no matter what method you use, it probably won't stop. Well, we'll take another commercial break here and be back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, bringing you interesting mental health-related news, like this next article we're going to talk about. The title is, Gut Feelings Help Make More Successful Financial Traders. Well, it's a study from the University of Cambridge, and it is about financial traders, But I thought when I saw the title of the article, what if it also gave us insights that could be applicable to just following your gut feelings in general, regardless of what your profession is or what the issue is about. So let's take a look at what the research did and what it concluded and see if it is more broadly applicable. It turns out that financial traders are better at reading their so-called gut feelings than the general population. And the better they are at this ability, the more successful they are as traders. Gut feelings, known technically as interoceptive sensations, are sensations that carry information to the brain from many tissues of the body, including the heart and lungs, as well as the gut. They can report anything from body temperature to breathlessness, racing heart, fullness from the gut, bladder and bowel, and they underpin states such as hunger, thirst, pain, and anxiety. We are often not conscious or at least barely aware of this information, but it provides valuable inputs in risky decision-making. High-risk choices are accompanied by rapid and subtle physiological changes that feed back to the brain, affecting our decisions and steering us away from gambles that are likely to lead to loss and towards those are likely to lead to profit. This can enable people to make important decisions even before they are able to articulate the reasons for their choices. Traders and investors in the financial markets frequently talk of the importance of gut feelings for selecting profitable trades. To find out the extent to which this belief is correct, researchers from the Universities of Cambridge and Sussex in the UK and Queensland University of Technology in Australia compared the interoceptive abilities of financial traders against those of non-trader control subjects. Their results are published in the journal Scientific Reports. The researchers recruited 18 male traders from a hedge fund engaged in high-frequency trading, which involves buying and selling futures contracts for only a short period of time, seconds or minutes, a few hours at most. This form of trading requires an ability to assimilate large amounts of information flowing through news feeds, to rapidly recognize price patterns, and to make large and risky decisions with split-second timing. This niche of the financial markets is particularly unforgiving. While successful traders may earn in excess of £10 million per year, 
unprofitable ones do not survive for long. And the study took place during a particularly volatile period, the Eurozone crisis. So the performance of each trader reflected his ability to make money during periods of extreme uncertainty. The researchers measured individual differences in each trader's capacity to detect subtle changes in the physiological state of their bodies by means of two established heartbeat detection tasks. These tasks test how accurately a person, when at rest, can count their heartbeats. Each trader was given a score which essentially measured the percentage of right answers, and these scores were compared against data from 48 students at the University of Sussex. The researchers found the traders performed significantly better at the heart rate detection tasks compared to the controls. The mean score for traders was 78.2 compared to 66.9 for the controls. Even within the group of traders, those who were better at the heart rate detection tasks also performed better at trading, generating greater profits. Strikingly, an individual's interoceptive ability could be used to predict whether they would survive in the financial markets. The researchers plotted heartbeat detection scores against years of experience in the financial markets, and they found that a trader's heartbeat counting score predicted the number of years he had survived as a trader. Traders in the financial world often speak of the importance of gut feelings for choosing profitable trades. They select from a range of possible trades the one that feels just right. The findings suggest that they're right. They manage to read real and valuable physiological trading signals, even if they are unaware they are doing so. Although the results are consistent with recent studies showing that heartbeat detection skills predict more effective risk-taking, the researchers caution that there may be other interpretations. For example, one study has found that heartbeat detection ability increases during stress, so it could be argued that heartbeat detection skills correlated with years of survival merely because experienced traders taking larger risks are subjected to greater stresses. The authors of the current study think this is unlikely. In trading, as in many other professions, experienced and successful individuals being more in control are commonly less stressed than beginners. The findings also appear to contradict the influential efficient markets hypothesis of economic theory, which argues that the market is random, meaning that no trait or skill of an investor or trader, not their IQ, education, nor training, can improve their performance. 
any more than these traits and skills could improve their performance at flipping coins. A large part of a trader's success and survival seems to be linked to their physiology. Such a finding has profound implications for how we understand financial markets. In economics and finance, most models analyze conscious reasoning and are based on psychology. They're looking instead at risk-takers' physiology. How good are they at sensing signals from their guts, literally? We should refocus on the body, or more exactly, the interaction between body and brain. <clears throat> Doctors find this obvious. Economists don't. Well, so now what do we think about whether this has any implications beyond traders and the markets? Well, I still think it does. And my point is that even though financial traders are better at heart rate detection tasks than people who aren't, I still think that people should pay more attention to their bodily signals when it comes to making decisions. Follow your instincts. Listen to the signals your body is giving you. Pay attention to your reactions. Don't ignore red flags. How many times have you regretted a decision you made when you were not sure it was the right decision in the first place, but you made it anyway. I think the take-home lesson for all of us is that if we pay more attention to the signals our body and our brains are giving us, we're going to make better decisions, and uh, sometimes that may mean taking a risk. Sometimes that may mean not taking a risk, but regardless... Uh, to me, that's the take-home message from this research. Yes, it's interesting that <clears throat> experienced and skilled uh, traders who've had uh, worked in the markets for a long time have this unique skill, but I think what's more important about the research is uh, it reinforces something I've always thought to be very important. Follow your instincts. Listen to them. Don't ignore them. Don't ignore the red flags. Um, <clears throat> If you think the risk is worth taking and you're confident in it, fine. But if something feels, looks, sounds bad to you and your body is giving you those signals, pay attention to that too. Don't just ignore it or you might regret it. Now, um, those of you who have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or have family members who do want to listen up to this next item, a study presented on September 5th, in London showed increased physical activity among patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD reduces their risk of anxiety or depression. Uh, now other health conditions are highly prevalent in patients with COPD. Low physical activity, a critical feature of COPD, is believed to be an important risk factor for these other health conditions. In the study, authors assessed the association of physical activity with the incidence of seven categories of other illnesses in COPD patients. It was 409 patients, 
from a primary care practice in Netherlands and Switzerland, and they followed these people for five years after giving them an initial baseline questionnaire. And they found out that as far as cardiovascular, neurological, hormonal, musculoskeletal, infectious diseases, and cancer conditions uh, were monitored, and then also they gave them the hospital anxiety and depression scale questionnaire. And they found that those with greater physical activity had a much reduced risk of all those other diseases within the next five years. So encourage exercise in COPD patients. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. Hope you found the information I brought to you interesting and informative, and I hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until the next time we get together. Otherwise, you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.